1: To then continue our study of the book of Genesis, and we're going to cover verses 18 through 29 in chapter 9. Uh, let's, by way of um, summary, we've seen the flood from sort of beginning to end, all the way until Noah reached uh, safely to shore and was blessed by God, and the covenant was instituted with Noah. A new, it was renewed. It's the same covenant that was established with Adam, it was now renewed with Noah. It's not a new covenant, it's the same one, but renewed with Noah. And so we're going to read from verse 18 through 29, and next week we're going to start delving into the book of genealogies. uh, Something that usually is not uh, the most exciting thing to read, but hopefully will get to understand why those genealogies are there. I'll give you a glimpse today why they're there. They, they actually have a lot, there's, there's a lot in scripture writing on those genealogies. And you will see that as you progress to the book of Genesis. So if you have scripture with you today, read with me starting with, beginning with verse 18 in chapter 9. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was peopled. Noah was the first tiller of the soil. He planted a vineyard. Verse 21, And he drank of the wine, and became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took garment, laid it upon both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a slave of slaves, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed by the Lord my God, be Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So we can, we can begin by making a couple of observations. The first one is that... Um, Noah was the first tiller of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. Obviously, this whole conversation that has already started between the narrator remember when this book is written, "The Jews are in Babylon hmm? and so the, this conversation is ongoing because the vine and wine were thought to be a gift from the gods. And here again, scripture affirms no such thing has happened. it is the product of the work of man. And we're going to deal with this business of saw the nakedness of his father in a moment. Uh, obviously, all, all of us probably are puzzled by the curse, because it was Ham who saw the nakedness of his father, yet it was Canaan, his son, Ham's son, Noah's grandson, who ended up being cursed. You you will notice the uh, the the fact that Noah is actually speaking out a curse. And if you recall the conversation we've had around that, the power of blessings and cursing that parents have, you see it here in action. Because that curse spoken by Noah is going to impact nations for generations to come. In fact, for thousands of years until the coming of Christ. It's huge. It's huge. So we'll get, we'll get into that in a moment. Here in this uh, passage, we have one of the rare cases where the firstborn is righteous. Shem is the firstborn, and he's actually a righteous firstborn. And according to tradition, Shem ends up being Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a title. right? It's a title. It's not a name. Malak Sodik, Righteous King. That's who he is. But that's not his name. And tradition ascribes it to, it says that Shem was that king. And when we'll do the calculation, we'll see that when Abraham was around, Shem was still alive. And what leads us to think so is because when Abraham met with Melchizedek, the king of Salem, which later on would become Jira Salem, Jerusalem, the city founded by Shem, Abraham paid tithe to to the to Melchizedek, and not the other way around. Therefore, Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Imagine someone greater than Abraham. And St. Paul, in his letter to the Hebrews, speak about that. And he likens Melchizedek. He, looks in, he sees in Melchizedek an image, a type of Christ. Right? Now, there's this one tradition which is really beautiful, and I have not really traced it enough, but it's maintained by the Byzantine church, I think more so than any other of the Eastern churches. And the, this tradition says that when Noah, when Noah went into the ark, he took with him the skull of Adam. And then he passed it on to his son, Melchizedek, and told him that one day the angel of the Lord will tell you where to bury him. And the angel of the Lord told him to bury it on the mount of the skull otherwise known as Golgotha, where Christ ends up being crucified, and his blood flows on Adam. And if you go to the Byzantine Church, uh, Holy Angels, if you ever go to Holy Angels, which is off the, the 805, On the left-hand side of the altar, if you look carefully where you see the crucifixion, you'll see blood pouring on a skull. That's the skull. Now, let's first of all deal with the first segment where Noah was the first tiller of the soil. He planted a vineyard, verse 20, and verse 21, and he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. You... Hopefully, by now, you know that getting drunk on purpose, and by this I mean drinking without restraint, you don't have to... On purpose, I don't mean you're drinking with the intent of getting drunk. You're drinking with the intent of no restraint. Uh, I have a, a colleague of mine, I was talking to him about this, about parties. So when we have parties, I'll drink probably... Uh, if it's a barbecue, within six hours I might have two beers. That's sort of the extent of what I would drink. And I was talking to him about that, and I asked him, so what do you guys drink in a party? He says, well, about 18. And he'll tell me, sometimes the, the party will be at his cousin, and he'll wake up in his bed, and he has no clue how he got there. Okay? Well, I hope you know by now that getting drunk... Drinking without restraint is a mortal sin. And if you die in that condition, you die with a mortal sin on your soul. Why is it a mortal sin? Why is it a mortal sin? Do you know? It's a mortal sin because you are created in the image of God, right? We are created in the image of God. What does that mean? What is the chief thing in us that makes us in the image of God? Reason, reason, our ability to reason is what makes us in the image of God. When you drink too much, what happens to your reason? It's gone. So you've effectively erased the image of God in you. So you've gone against the covenant and you've gone against God by erasing that part of you which is most godlike that is why all right be very careful with this there's more to getting drunk and driving okay so the question is now for noah he drank and was drunk did he then commit a moral sin that's the question so about this text once more we have here a summary of a fuller text whose account was lost Obviously, the author is just picking up very, a very brief summary of a much longer text, and we don't have it. Uh, because otherwise, if, if, if he was writing it for the first time, it is rather, we would assume that he would be giving us a much, much more detailed account about those events. But obviously, he's writing about something that his audience know about, and he's just reminding them of it and moving, for, moving, moving on. Time obviously has passed since Noah planted vines, and, and has and since Noah plant, since Noah reached um, um, since the water receded. Because he has now a grandson, and we know that when they came out of the ark, there were eight, and there was no grandson around. So it didn't happen the following day that Noah walked around planted a vine and he got drunk. Time went by, and one day he did that. Okay? But in the text. No mention is made of this, which again suggests that he's basically picking the headers, the headings of a story that is fairly well known. Ham is mentioned three times for obvious reasons. And, um, and you should note here, there's a literary technique used in scripture all the time, where the author would introduce seemingly insignificant facts that would become critical later. So, um, in verse 18, for instance... Ham was the father of Canaan. Why is it mentioned there out of context? So, the sons of Noah went forth from the ark, where Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Ham was the father of Canaan. Why mention it now? Because the author is preparing what is to come. Another famous example is when Moses goes up on the mountain to speak to the Lord, and the Lord starts telling Moses how he shall build the ark of the covenant. And it makes no sense even to Moses to talk about the Ark of the Covenant because the Ark is where the Lord will dwell. An Ark, right? An Ark takes people apart as the Ark of Noah. So why would the Lord talk to Moses about an Ark that he's going to build and be set apart when Moses is going up the mountain to talk to God about God living amongst his people? Now, we know why. Because later on he will tell them tell him about what his people were doing while he was up on the mountain so scripture will do that often and you have to be careful when you read it not to miss those uh, clues because they're really important as i mentioned earlier the uh, the narrator has one of his goals is to tell us that non that that natural non-magical approach to producing the vine is behind is is what happened um For instance, in the Atrahasis epic, which is one of the other epics of the region that speak of the flood, we learn, or we are told, that the um, population of the world came about through magical means of the gods, not through the three sons of Noah. So, the gods, by a magical act, populated the earth. And we also learn that in Greek legend... Deucalion and Pyrrha, the survivors of the flood, were both told to cast behind them the bones of their mother, which they understood to mean stones from the earth. And these bones miraculously turned into male and female humans. So all these other accounts that you see are accounts that involve magic. Meaning what? Meaning a belief that is not based or founded on reason. Again, you should see how Scripture is very reasonable. It appeals to reason. It doesn't appeal to anything else. So if you meet folks of a different faith, whatever the faith may be, I had a colleague who was Muslim, a fairly nice young man, like him quite a bit, and we were talking about the faith. Faith in general. And I just simply pointed out to him, that any time somebody requires you to believe in something and shut down your reason, that's the moment when you have to run. Okay? Because our faith is not, cannot fully be explained by reason. We agree. There are, certain, there are many things in it that go beyond reason. But they do not contradict reason. And the perfect example I can give you is love. True love is not purely reasonable. It doesn't sit in reason. But true love satisfies reason. Satisfies reason. All right? And that's how you have an abiding peace when you have a sense that everything fits together. Right? So for instance, um, a guy tells a girl that he loves her and he wants her to move in with him And uh, not be married. Reason then suggests to this girl that this guy may not love her as much as he says he does. Why? Because he doesn't seem to have her best interest in mind. He doesn't seem to have her best interest in mind. Her best interest in mind would suggest that he would commit his life to her because she's worth it. That would then say that he's really willing to love her for the rest of his life. But if he's not willing to make this commitment, reason then suggests that this guy, maybe he's sincere, but he's sincerely wrong. And it happens quite a bit. And now why is that? Because our emotions, if not kept in check, and if not, if not brought through virtue to conform to good reason, emotions take over. And it becomes very, very hard to control our reason. Our reason becomes clouded and we make bad decisions and we make bad mistakes. And that is why the church has always counseled those who are seeking the vocation of marriage to make sure that they don't get into the business of boyfriends and girlfriends, but rather seek courtship and when they are seeking courtship, not to be alone for an extended period of time. Because our passions can take over and our reason get to be clouded and we miss the boat. So it isn't that the church wants us to be controlled and wants to make sure that it has complete control over us. The church, as a wise mother, know our weaknesses. We're weak and so we're tempted easily. And we take our precaution as a way to... Be careful with these things. And that's why the church also gives us Lent. Lent is a wonderful period where we get those emotions, we rain on our emotions and our appetites, so that we can grow in wisdom. So I'm hoping that you're really, you're really putting these weeks into really good effect. We are now midway through Lent. And if you're struggling, if you're in battle, it, this would, week should be for you the week of slothfulness, and negotiation. That's the week, if you're really making an effort, that's the week where you're sort of negotiating. Well, maybe I can just have something between lunch and supper. Maybe I can eat a banana. Maybe I can do this. If you're having those types of conversation with yourself, you're now aware of the meaning of Jesus' word, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Our body rebel. Our bodies are not prone to discipline. We want it easy. So the more you discipline yourself, the more you're careful what you eat, the more you're temperate, the better you're equipped to make the right decision at the right time and not allow your emotions to cloud your reason. You don't want to stifle your emotions. You want them to be an expression of beauty, not an expression of vice. That's the key. And in his case, what happened to Noah? Was he drunk because he decided to drink of the vine and then just let himself go? Well, there are two two explanations. The first one is obviously the most common. It's the one that... uh, Theodoric of Sire points, uh, brings up, and that is, Noah's drunkenness stems from ignorance and not from excess. He didn't know what the effect of, vine, of wine on him, and so he drank without knowledge. And in that case, he's innocent of the crime because he was not intent, he did not intent on being drunk. It happened to him. Saint Ephraim, on the other hand, tells us that it wasn't due to ignorance, it was due to abstinence. Saint Ephraim is of the opinion that Noah knew about the vine before the flood and brought it with him, so to speak, and planted it. But since he hadn't drunk for such a he hasn't drink he didn't drink for such a long period, the wine had a much stronger effect on him than expected. In both cases, the father's unanimous Noah did not commit a sin when he did that. However, I'd I'd like to read to you this very short quotation from St. John Chrysostom. Dreadful sins arise not from wine as such, but from intemperate attitudes of human depravity that undermine the benefits that should naturally come from it. Let me read it to you in maybe a little bit of a different context to kind of highlight some of the issues we have. Dreadful sins arise not from the stock market as such, but from intemperate attitudes of human depravity that undermine the benefits that should naturally come from it. If there is any doubt about the reason why we are here, as one somebody summed it up very, very well, he said, "We are here collectively, because we, collectively, have fallen." prey to laziness and greed. We, collectively, wanted to make a a quick buck, make it really fast, and didn't stop to think about the consequences of our action. So, that's from a stock market point of view, but it doesn't matter what it is, it's really not the thing in itself that is going to cause you to sin, it is your own interior behavior that can lead you to sin or not to sin, right? That's the key. Uh, there is this story that I know about St. Charbel, and if you don't know who he is, he's this saint whose portrait is over there, uh, next to Our Lady. And St. Charbel was a hermit in Lebanon, and uh, in the Maronite order, hermits live four together, usually. They're not alone, there are four of them. And the one quotation that I remember is one of his brother's hermit who was with him, who said of him that when he observed St. Charbel... And he would observe him practicing one virtue, say humility. He'd say to himself, this is his virtue. This is the virtue that he's most excellent at. And then he'd see him observe another virtue. And he would say the same thing. Here's a very simple story. St. Charbel, being a hermit, would also... In fact, I think before he joined the hermitage, he would work in the field. And... And one day, um, I think the Father Superior came and looked at everybody, all those who working in the field, and said, where's Father Charbel? He said, well, he's, he's over there, still working. They were sitting eating, they were having lunch. So he went over and asked him, Father Charbel, have you had lunch? He said, no. Why? Nobody called me. And that's the only meal of the day. And that was it. What about yesterday? No. Why? Nobody called? And the day before? why? Nobody called me. At one point, there was one a, a, a brother who, was, uh, who had a temper, obviously uh, an exception among Lebanese. And um, he was getting a little bit annoyed with Father Charbel. And so he told Father Charbel at, at one point, why don't you just go pick some, some sticks for the fire from that hill over there? Nine o'clock in the evening, Father Charbel is coming back from that hill over there with sticks on his back. This kind of prompt obedience is very far from us. We have trouble with that type of virtue. But that's what we should be exercising. We should really work on those virtues during this period of Lent, even if we're doing a little bit, even a little bit, so we could grow in God's love and be able to detach to detach ourselves from those things that we cannot take with us when the Lord calls us. So, Noah uncovered himself. The When we read this particular passage about Noah uncovering himself, and Ham, his son, seemingly laughing about it and telling his brothers, and Noah waking up and cursing his grandson, we have a sense that there is a disproportion between the the fault that was committed on the part of Ham, who laughed about his father's nakedness, and the punishment, which seems really out of proportion. I mean, after all, if, let's say, a father and mother happens to be in a bathroom, and a kid opens the door accidentally, nobody would expect the parent to curse the child. And it seems to us as if something of that order is going on here. Something that is really beyond proportion. And one reason, obviously, is because we're disconnected from the culture. There's a number of reasons, but the first one is that we're really disconnected from the culture. So let's start to understand what's going on here. Um, in scripture, drunkenness is oftenly associated, not often, but sometimes associated with drunkenness, with Drunkenness is associated with nakedness. I'm sorry. Habakkuk, the, the, the book of the prophet Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. Woe to you who give your neighbors a flood of your wrath to drink and make them drunk till their nakedness is seen. You're filled with shame instead of glory. Drink, you too, and stagger. On you shall revert the cup from the Lord's right hand and utter shame on your glory. The particular interesting thing about this quotation is the word shame and nakedness. Can you think of another situation where we've seen these two words together? Adam and Eve. Remember? At the close of that period, right before they were tempted, the the, the holy narrator tells us that they were in the garden, they were naked, and they knew no shame. Right, They knew no shame. And then after they had committed that sin... They saw that they were naked, and they felt shame and covered themselves. So, obviously, from this passage, there is a relationship between what Ham did and the shame of Noah. He shamed his father. right? He shamed his father. But still, shaming his father should not result into his father cursing his son. Let me let me get into this, the, the business of the curses and the blessings. Verse 18, 19, and 20. When he awoke, Noah said, Cursed be Canaan. So Ham, remember, you're going to have to start remembering those names. And I would suggest those of you taking notes, start building this uh, genealogy. You're going to need it. All right? You're going to need it. So Noah had three sons. Shem is the eldest. And... He's a righteous one. Japheth and Ham. And Ham had a son whose name is Canaan. He had more than one, but we'll get to that. But keep these things in order, because it's going to be very important. Ham is the one who saw his father's nakedness. Noah curses Canaan, his grandson, who's not mentioned. Hmm? Why? We need to also look at it in context. Notice what he does. He does one cursing and two blessings. And by the way, cursing, for those of you who were not with us for this conversation, just to be clear here, cursing is not swearing. You understand? He's not just swearing as in uttering bad bad language. Cursing in here is not bad language. Okay? It's powerful language. It is very, very potent. And that's why St. Paul tells us, bless and don't curse. He doesn't mean bless and don't swear. He's not trying to say, when something happens to you, don't use swear words, but bless God. He's really talking about the power of blessing and the power of cursing. Okay? So, He said, Blessed by the Lord my God be Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. The word God here is in the the original Yahweh, the, the holiest name used, Yahweh. And then God enlarges Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. God here is Elohim, the generic name used for God. So there is even a distinction between the two blessings that is given to Shem, a priestly blessing, and to Japheth, a more generic blessing. They're not at the same level. We'll get to that in a moment. It is also important to point out that Shem is blessed by God, but Japheth is blessed through his relationship to Shem. Because he says, God enlarged Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. So by dwelling in the tents of Shem, Japheth partakes of the blessing that Shem receives from God. And in that, we have these three, the the curse of Ham, and the blessing of Shem, and the blessing of Japheth, we have prefigured the church, the damned, and the world. The damned prefigured in Canaan, the church prefigured in in Shem, who receives the priestly blessing, and the world prefigured in Japheth, who receives earthly wealth through the blessing of his older brother, Shem. And it is so even today, where all the blessings that God gives to the world, material or otherwise, flow to the world through the Church. No blessing is received by anyone out there that doesn't come to us through the Catholic Church. Okay, So St. Ephraim points out that Japheth increased to the north and the west. So you can think of it this way, the, the Europe and, and um, all the way through to Russia, would be linked back to Japheth. And, and that Canaan became the slave of Shem, when in the na- days of Joshua, son of Nun, Joshua, the Joshua, the Israelites destroyed the dwelling places of Canaan and pressed their leaders into bondage. So that curse was realized in the days of Joshua. It took time, but it was realized. St. Ambrose, reflecting on this passage, writes, When we read that he was blessed, who was blessed by his father, and that he was cursed, who was cursed by his father, we learn above else what great reverence to show our parents. And God gave this privilege to parents so as to arouse respect in the children. The formation of the children is then the prerogative of the parents. Therefore, honor your father that he may bless you that he may bless you. You can tell, if you have a godly father, if you have a father who is a believer, and living a pious life, and you are um, wanting to be married, you can tell that your marriage is blessed, if you receive your father's blessing. If your father withholds his blessing, your marriage is, May go through really difficult times. You have not received that blessing which should be yours. And today, we have so forgotten about these things that we seldom ask our father and our mother to impart their blessing. We've stopped completely because we don't believe in those things. They became meaningless to us, but they are very powerful. They're very powerful. You, you have to understand those things and realize that God gave through the sacrament of marriage real power to parents over their children. Okay? So now let's look at this curse of Canaan. He saw his father's nakedness. While there is no clear consensus on the meaning of the sentence, most writers, whether Jewish rabbis who've commented on this text, or the fathers of the church, most of them seem to be of the opinion, or actually are of the opinion, that it did not mean what we think it means. It does not mean that um, Ham looked at his father while his father was sleeping naked. That's not what's going on here. As I mentioned to you, Scripture must be interpreted in light of all of Scripture. So, we go look in Scripture for other passages where these words are mentioned to give us insight on the meaning of this text. And there is one passage in particular where this is mentioned and gives us some understanding, and that is in the book of Leviticus, chapter 20, verse 11. The book of Leviticus, Leviticus 20, 11. And it says the following... The man who lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. The man who lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. So, we need to think a little bit more about that. Remember what I told you? An explanation has to appeal to our reason. It must come to us as reasonable, because otherwise we don't understand what's going on here. A couple of things. First of all, we have to understand that the law of incest was not established until Exodus. Before Exodus, that law was not given by God. So, sexual relationships be- among members of the same family were not considered incestuous up until the law was given. Alright? But let's ask this question. If we were to apply this text to what is going on, why in the world would Ham want to do such a thing with his mother? What would provoke him to do such a thing? He was not drunk. Nice try. He wants to become the king. That is the most reasonable explanation. How do we know that? If you recall when Absalom, the son of David, rebelled against his father and tried to take his father's uh, kingdom, what did he do? He went after his father's women. Why? Because whoever, whoever, has the queen declares himself king. That is an appealing explanation because it explains the act and it ties back to to another pattern we've seen before where someone else was also contending for that position. Cain. Cain killed his brother Abel when he thought that Abel was going after his position, the position he wanted, that of a king. So we have two reasons to ascribe to this particular explanation, because it kind of fits the overall picture. In the moment of weakness, he went after, and he basically went out and boasted about what he did. Alright? Now, obviously, there is no consensus, as I said. There isn't one explanation that the Church puts before us. The... The Jewish rabbis have other explanations that they provide, much worse than this. Which are graphical, and I don't need to get into them. But they all turn around some sort of sexual activity that had taken place, which should not have taken place. If that is the case, we, kind of, we will understand better why Noah reacted the way he did. Why a curse was pronounced. What we still have to contend with is the reason why he cursed his grandson and not his son. Before we get into this, a couple of comments that I think are worth making here. St. Augustine points out that this is the first time the word slave is used in scripture. This is the first time. The reason that Noah is using it and he knows about it gives us an idea of what was going on in the Cainite civilization, the civilization of Cain, where presumably people were taken as slaves. And it is a mere, it's merely a condition deservedly imposed on a sinful man, as St. Augustine says. In a spiritual sense, slavery is what happens to every sinner. Any sinner is enslaved to the devil. So whoever is living in a state of sin is owned by the devil. And that is why it is important for us to go to confession regularly. And often. Regularly and often. And if you're wondering what that means, it means that ideally, we ought to go to confession once a week. We wash our bodies, I'm sure, more than once a week. Our soul deserves nothing less. Think of it this way. Very, very basic... um, basic uh, uh, hygiene, if you will. Now, this curse... Has far reaching consequences. As I mentioned to you earlier, Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 16. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 16 and following. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God gives you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. You shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Pesazites, Hivites, Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that that they may, their abominable practices, which, which they have done in the services of the God, so they may not, I'm sorry, they may not, uh, I think, tempt you by their abominable pr- practices which they have done in the service of their gods and so to sin against the Lord your God. It was a command given by Moses to get in and utterly destroy all of them. And it means all of them. Men, women, children, all everybody. Now all these people mentioned here track back to Ham; They're all under the curse. Yes, Deuteronomy. That's the book of Deuteronomy, and it's Deuteron- Moses giving them a command as to how to behave when they entered the land of Canaan. Okay? This is no empty words, and you will see how this curse impacts so many of us. So Canaan seems to be cursed for the sin of his father. Why was he cursed then? St. Ephraim points out that Ham was blessed when he enters, when he entered the ark, and this is why he's not cursed. Huh? Well, number one, Ham was indeed blessed when he entered the ark, because God blessed them when he entered the ark. So if you're blessed, you cannot be cursed. That's what Scripture implies. A blessing that is given can't be taken away. Where do we know that from? Well, I'll let you read this, Genesis 27, verse 20 through 30. We're going to cover that passage later. Genesis 27, verse 20 through 30. You know the story very, very well. It is the story of how Jacob tricked his father, right, Isaac, to give him the blessing of the firstborn. And when Esau came later and asked his father to bless him, his father said the blessing has gone, has gone out. I cannot bless you. That indicates that this blessing that was given by uh, Isaac, even though he was strict, and he knew that he was strict, could not be taken back. It was given. That's what leads in Ephraim to say. The father was blessed. He could not be cursed. The son got cursed instead. Well, that's great consolation for us, isn't it? So that's the first principle, the irrevo- irrevocability of the blessing. The second principle the son's identity with the father, the son's identity with the father, as in Hebrews chapter 7 through 9, chapter 7, verse 9. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, was tithed through Abraham, for he was still in his father's loins when Melchizedek met him. St. Paul is speaking about the Levitical order. And how the Levitical order is lesser than the order of Melchizedek. And he's explaining that by saying that Levi paid tithe to Melchizedek. Even though Levi was still in his father's loins. Who is his father? Abraham. Okay, you're going to have to learn your, your, your genealogies, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Levi. Levi... And the Levitical priesthood, Levi, is the son of Jacob, who is the son of Isaac, who is the son of Abraham. So, St. Paul is saying, Levi paid tithe to Melchizedek, even though he was in his father's loan. Why? Because you identify the father and the son. Whatever the father does, applies to the son. And whatever the son does, applies to the father. That's the second argument St. Ephraim gives. Why? He was cursed. There is more to it than that. I'll come back to it in a moment. St. Augustine points out that the sins of the fathers fall on their children. Now, that's where we get really interesting. How do we know that the sins of the fathers fall on their children? Well, the most dramatic scene is obviously in Egypt. When God comes during Passover and slays the firstborn. The first male born is slain, even though he may be a child, a babe. He kills them all in Egypt. That was the tenth plague. Why? On account of the sins of their fathers. The second is found in the second book of Samuel, chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. David, David saw Bathsheba naked. And he called her to himself and did what he did. And she fell. she was pregnant. Surprise! So, he knew the law. If a man is found with another woman who is not his own and she's pregnant, both of them should be stoned. So what does he do? He covers it up. He calls Uriah, her husband, tries to get him to go see his wife but he's a just man and he will not do so when his men are sleeping in tents in the city and he stays with them. Twice he does it and twice Uriah refuses. And so, the third thing that uh, David does is obviously to kill him. So look how the whole psychology of sin. First, one look. One gaze. Second, lust. Third... um committing adultery. Fourth, lying about it. Five, um, uh, um, before murder, deception. And six, murder. And then he was happy. He thought he was done. Then Nathan was sent to him. And you know the story about the man who had 99 lamb and the poor man who had only one lamb. And the guy who had 99 lamb wanted to have a party. And he took the lamb of the one who had only one and prepared this. And Nathan asked David, what do you think this man deserves?" And as usual, David saw the iniquity committed by that man through this, the, the prism of his own sin. Okay. Most of the time when you get really upset about something and you're riling up about something, something really is a pet peeve for you. Examine yourself because that might be the thing that you really hate the most about yourself. Because we tend to see the fault of others through the prism of our own sins. Okay? So now, the, and then when this happened, Nathan told David, you're that man. And David realized what happened and he then repented. He repented. Nevertheless, and we get to the passage. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan answered David, the Lord on his part has forgiven your sin. David immediately repented and confessed his sin. I have sinned. And he answered right away, your sin is forgiven. But it doesn't mean that the punishment due to sin is gone. You understand? The punishment is not. The sin is forgiven. You still have to pay for it though. And so he tells him, But since you have utterly spurned the Lord by his deed, by this deed, the child born to you must surely die. And so the child the child dies. Even though he fasted and he prayed and he he died. And that was the only price that David paid, his older son, Absalom, turned against him. And he had so much to suffer on account of this iniquity. So, when you go to confession, the priest gives you a penance. Say, to Hail Mary's, or a rosary, or whatever the case may be. Why? Because this is your punishment. And the priest doesn't have to worry about how severe the punishment is, because he knows that, God willing, if you die in the state of grace, there's always purgatory, where you're going to pay for the punishment due to sin. you understand? That is why ninety-nine point nine 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 percent of all those who go to heaven go first to purgatory. Very, very, very few make it straight up. Okay? And from the description that we know about purgatory, the slightest suffering of purgatory is much much greater than the greatest suffering you can imagine here down on earth. Much greater. Alright? So, if you are interested, if you're interested in avoiding purgatory, and which you should, the church offers us indulgences. And an indulgence is an act of mercy that the church performs, whereby the church takes from the treasury of grace earned to us by by Christ on His cross and of the, 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 the saints, and sort of pays the punishment that is due to sin. Now, the punishment is gone. That's what an indulgence is. Yes? And guess what? There's a big one coming up. You want to know about it? Okay, you know about the Sunday of Divine Mercy. It is the Sunday after Easter. It's the Sunday after Easter. There is a plenary indulgence attached to that day. On the, on on Good Friday, Good Friday. Good Friday, right? On Good Friday, you begin the novena of the the, the of Divine Mercy. The Novena, the Chapter of Divine Mercy. I think we have booklets outside, or you can Google it. And it's a prayer that you say on nine days. And on the ninth day, on that Sunday, you should have gone to confession. You should have prayed for the intention of the Holy Father. And there's, uh, I think, a couple of other conditions. But the most important thing you want to pray for is perfect contrition. Perfect sorrow for your sins, because they have offended God, not because they can land you in hell. It's sorrow for your sins because they can offend God. If you have perfect contrition, then all, those, all the punishment due to sin is gone. That is the act of mercy that God gave us, that God gave us, that is present in our church, and you should look into it. Another thing I'll tell you about that, if you don't know about it, is that if you love Our Lady, and if you're devoted to Her, and you ought to be, then, you can also wear her scapular. Anyone here doesn't know about the scapular? So, I don't, I don't tell you something you already know? Yeah? You can go to Prince of Peace Abbey, up on the 76, Google it, and they have scapulars. It's essentially a piece of cloth that you wear, just like this one I'm showing you. Mine is fairly old now. And it represents the monastic habit. It's a way of saying that you are going to do everything you can for the glory of Our Lady. And uh, yes, it comes in a variety of ways. I like the cloth one. I like the cloth one, but, but they have various ones. And you can wear the scapular around your neck and work diligently for the honor of Our Lady. And she promised that if you were to die... With your scapular on, not just this is not superstition. All right, this is not that this piece of cloth alone can do something. It does nothing at all. It's a reminder and a physical sign of your interior desire to honor and serve Our Lady appropriately. But if you were to die, then on the Saturday, the first Saturday following your death, she will come to Purgatory and take you out of there, even if your punishment would confine you to Purgatory until the end of time. And oh, by the way, when she appeared to, in Fatima to the three children, um, Jacinta asked her about a friend of hers who died and was 10 years old, and asked her where she was. And Our Lady told her she's in purgatory, she was 10 years old, and that she will stay there until the end of time. Yes. Okay? So when you go to funerals, when you go to funerals, please do pray for the deceased. Right? These days, everybody is given you know, the immediate check he's in heaven. Everybody says he's in a better place than... Well, if he's in purgatory, he's definitely in a better place because he has assurance of salvation. He's going to go to heaven no matter what. You can't In purgatory, there's no choice. You can't just go to hell. You're there, you're going to go to heaven. But, but the, the sufferings is very bitter and long, and your prayers help. And you can gain indulgences for souls in purgatory as well. So pray for them. St. Padre Pio used to say in his Mass, there were more souls from purgatory present than people in the church. And the church was full. So don't ignore those who died. They really need our prayers. More so today than ever. Alright? Very important. Okay. And again, I'll give you a couple of other um, quotations where you can find these texts. I'm not going to read all of them. But they all repeat the same thing where the children are basically uh, paying the price for the parents. Uh, this, uh, so the first the first book of Kings, chapter 14, verse 12 and 13. Actually, I'll read this one because it's short. This is the wife of Jeroboam the king who was pretty bad. Who went to see the, the, prof, the prophet and she's asking him about... Uh, what is going to happen and the prophet tells her so leave go home as you step inside the city the child will die and all israel will mourn him and bury him for he alone of jeroboam's line will be laid in the grave since in him alone of jeroboam's house has something pleasing to the lord the god of israel been found so of all the line of jeroboam he is going to die and be buried everybody else will die and won't even be buried and again you will find it in, one, in the first King chapter 25 um, through 29, and you're dealing here with the husband of Jezebel, Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 18. "You continue your kindness through a thousand generations, and you repay the father's guilt even into the lap of their sons who follow them. O God, great and mighty, whose name is Lord of hosts." In Exodus, chapter 20, verse 5. Um, you shall not bow down before them or worship them, for I, the Lord, your God, I am a jealous God, inflicting punishment for their father's wickedness on the children of those who hate me, down to the third and fourth generation. And so St. Augustine then asks, Are these statements false? Who would say this but the most open enemy of the divine words? then carnal generation even of the people of god of, of the old testament binds children for the sins of their parent that my friends is the power of the covenant it's not just about you and jesus your action affect your children having said that take heart because there's another side to the whole thing. There is, effectively, a Lee Carter argument. I already told you we need to read Scripture in light of all of Scripture. Is that all that Scripture says? No. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 29 through 31. So, Jeremiah 31, 29 through 31. In those days, they shall no longer say, The fathers ate unripe grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. You understand the saying? The fathers ate unripe grapes. You know how they taste? Bitter, right? Very bitter. And so he's saying, the father ate unripe grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge, meaning the children's teeth are hurting, because it's so so bitter. The father did it, the children are suffering. He says, no longer they will say this. But through his own fault, only shall anyone die. The teeth of him who eats the unripe grapes shall be set on edge. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Even more so, Ezekiel chapter 18. So, let me read parts of it. Verse 3, As I live, says the Lord God, I swear, God is taking an oath, that there shall no longer be anyone among you who will repeat this proverb in Israel. Fathers have eaten green grapes, thus their children's teeth are on edge. He's saying, I swear, I take an oath that you will cease to repeat this proverb. You will not say it anymore. For all lives are mine. The life of the father is like the life of the son. Both are mine. Only the one who sins shall die. If a man is virtuous, if he he does what is right and just, if he does not eat on the mountains nor raise his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, if he does not defile his neighbor's wife, nor have relations with a woman in her menstrual period. Don't worry about it. This is all had to do with the, with the law back then. I'm not going to get into this. Um, God is not upset with women who have menstrual period. There is more to it than that. The bottom line is that if a man does not sin, okay, if he oppresses no one, gives back the pledge received for debt, etc., etc., if he does all these things, if he lives by my statutes and is careful to observe my ordinances, that man is virtuous, he shall surely live, says the Lord God. But if he begets a son who is a thief, a murderer who does any of these things, though the father does none of them, a son who eats on the mountain, etc., etc., does all these abominable things, Right, the son certainly shall not live. And on and on it goes. The whole passage is very, very clearly set to indicate personal responsibility the other passage was talking about what communal responsibility here we have personal responsibility yeah and another passage that i'll, I'll uh, mention to you which you may know also about is in luke chapter 13 verse 1 through 5 luke 13 1 through 5 so here this is this is our lord who is speaking At that time some people who were present there told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with the blood of their sacrifices. He said to them in reply, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way they were greater sinners than all other Galileans? By no means. But I tell you, if you do not repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 people who were killed when the tower at Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than everyone else who lived in Jerusalem? By no means. But I tell you, if you do not repent, you will all perish as they did. Again, personal responsibility. So which is it? Which is it? As usual, the answer is both. Now we have to work it. We have to think about how it fits all together. How could it be both? I'll give you an outline. I'll give you an outline. And then we can stop. So, we have two statements. God visits the sins of the parents on their children. That's one. That's the communal responsibility. On the other side, everyone is responsible for his own sin. Personal responsibility. How do you get the two to work together? The key is to realize that all the statements are read to you about personal responsibility take effect only through the New Covenant. Only through the new covenant, not the old. The flaw in the old covenant was that it could not sanctify anyone. The old covenant was made to point people to the real thing. It did not have power of sanctification. God was willing to forgive the sins of the whole nation. But there was no forgiveness of personal sins. That did not exist. For if this did exist, then the gates of heaven would not be closed. And the righteous ones would not be in limbo awaiting the coming of Christ. With the coming of Jesus Christ, personal sanctity is possible. Personal sanctity is possible. And therefore, through the grace of Jesus Christ, a man who lives a righteous life can save himself. Okay? What is really interesting is that this personal responsibility is also couched in, um, is really centered around holiness. It's centered around holiness. What do I mean by this? If someone lives outside the new covenant, if he is not partaker of the new covenant, then the old covenant applies, the covenant of Noah. And the communal responsibility still applies. If someone lives in the new covenant, then he can escape the curse of the old covenant and is now. Accountable for his own actions. Okay? Why? What happened to that curse? I mean, after all, God said, I will do this. So, what happened to that curse? Where did it go? How can we escape it without breaking God's command? Yeah, the cross. He took on this curse. On our our behalf. That's what He did. He took on that curse. And in return gives us the grace to be able to live a life of holiness. You understand how it works? So even today, you have two laws, so to speak. The law of mercy that comes to us through the new covenant. And then the law of justice that comes to us through the old covenant. And there are people who live really according to different laws and suffer differently. Now, let's add one more twist. What happens then, you might say, to parents who seemingly are good Catholic, live a good life, and then their children die? Is God punishing them because of their own sins? There's another option. There's another option, which was not present in the Old Testament but it's present and in you. Right? And that is of sacrificial souls. Souls who suffer with Christ to save other souls. So, we can't tell. We don't have the knowledge, the divine knowledge, to know what is in the heart of man, to be able to say, if some, such and such happens to somebody, it means this or that or the other. We really don't. Only God has a prerogative to be able to tell. But what we can do and must do is be aware of the power of that covenant and ask ourselves these questions. Am I right with God? Am I living up to this responsibility that is mine, to this honor that has been given me at my baptism? Or am I squandering the riches that God put in my hand? Those questions where we can are the questions we can answer today, especially in this time of Lent. So I do hope that you're, you've begun practicing the examination of conscience, that you're taking time at least once a week, hopefully getting to the point where it becomes daily, where you're questioning yourself. Not torturing yourself, just questioning yourself. Will the help of your garden angel about your own action today and prepare for tomorrow? that you start your day with prayer, that you end it with prayer. And that you truly have the desire to become a saint and go to heaven. And here's one prayer I might suggest you pray if you are wearing the scapular. Pray for your hour of death to be on a Friday at about Five past midnight. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay? So 11.55 p.m. on Friday evening, right? You know. Because if you're wearing that scapular, Our Lady promised that on the first Saturday following your death, she will come and take you out of purgatory. This is not bartering, but hey, you lose nothing asking, right? Ask, it should be given you. Hey, that's it. That's it. So look into the scapular and see if it is something that, that, that corresponds to where you are in your journey. So you can wear it. And when you wear it, the secret to keep it on your neck, is it does tend to disappear, as I've seen it with multiple people, is you never take it out. I mean never, not in a shower, not in the pool, never, that's how you keep it, any other attempt and it will just disappear, and you're, what did I put it, and you forget about it, so think about it, pray about it, and ask God to guide you to his mother, because surely if she's holding your hand, she can't get lost, no way, God bless
0: you.